I talk to other theater performers who would do six or seven shows a week. And I say, okay, how, how do you do that? You go, don't go out and hang with your friends afterwards. Don't party with your friends. If you want to see them, see them for lunch the next day or something like that. So I, yeah, I took that advice. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie Zooms with David Byrne to talk about his career and putting together his Broadway show, American Utopia. People may not like this kind of thing. They may, you know, go, where's the story? What do you think about when you think about David Byrne? The talking heads, no doubt, and some of the most joyful pop music ever. But there's so much more to the man. Over the years, he has collaborated with artists in dance, theater, film, and television, which has resulted in him winning an Oscar, many Grammy Awards, and an induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Before the pandemic hit, he had a Broadway show called American Utopia, which has been turned into a film directed by Spike Lee and a book by the same name illustrated by the great Myra Kalman. He joins me today to talk about his extraordinary life, making so many extraordinary things. David Byrne, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Thank you. David, I understand you donned an Elsa costume during your recent appearance on John Mulvaney's television show. Are you a fan of the movie Frozen? You know, I've never seen Frozen. That's a big hole in my cultural literacy. I know that. (laughs) But I did know what it was referring to. You also said on the show that as you were growing up, you were afraid of volcanoes. I'm wondering why. Well, yeah. Uh, When I was a child, I read about this volcano that grew quite suddenly within a space of a few months uh, in a farmer's field in Mexico. And I don't know how old I was. Eight, maybe, something like that. I don't know. And it completely terrified me that a mountain could erupt in what seemed to me to be the backyard (laughs) and spew fire and destruction. And so I was terrified, and I would run to my parents' room in the middle of the night and go, could there be any volcanoes here? And they would keep reassuring me, no, there are no volcanoes likely to happen in Baltimore. (laughs) But uh, it took a while before I got over that. You were born in Scotland, but moved to Canada when you were two, and then to a town outside of Baltimore where you grew up. And I understand that when you were a little boy, you thought you might want to be a mailman. Wow. How did that bit of information get out? Yes. I don't know what age I was, but I was old enough to know that the mailman was a steady job and you got benefits. (laughs) You got medical (laughs) You, had, it was a, you were a federal employee, so you, you got medical and social security and all that. So somehow I knew about that. And I thought, and you get to be on the outdoors. And there's nobody bossing you around on the outdoors. You're just kind of walking around. You can think to yourself. Nobody's kind of hovering over you. You can think to yourself. You can sing a song. Uh, you could mull things over in your mind. And I thought, that sounds like the best job in the world. And I read that when you were in high school, you ran for student office on a platform to get the jukebox back in the cafeteria and eliminate faculty advisors. And I understand that you almost won. 
But then I started thinking about it and I was wondering why was the jukebox taken out in the first place? Was it sort of a, you know, the dance movie with Kevin Bacon? I was wondering if that happened to your town. You weren't allowed to dance anymore. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm, sure the, I'm sure the jukebox was a little bit disruptive in the cafeteria, but I was extraordinarily shy, but I didn't, maybe because of that, I had nothing to lose by doing something ridiculous, like running for student council president or other things that I would do, and later on jumping up on stage and singing. So yeah, that idea of not having anything to lose, not having any social capital that I meant a lot to me, that ended up having an advantage to it. Yes. Your dad was an electrical engineer and also an amateur painter. And I read that if he found a nice frame, he would take a saw and cut off part of the picture to fit the frame. And I'm wondering if that is sort of where you got your Dadaist influences. Uh, well, I don't know if I got that influence there. <laughs> I think even when I was younger, I thought, there's something not right about that. There's <laughs> something not it, quite though. right about that. So I mean, it's like. Ah, this shirt's too small for me. I'll just cut off my arm. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you took up the harmonica at five years old, and I read that by the time you were a teenager, you kept a transistor radio under your pillow so your parents wouldn't hear it. But it seems as if your dad really encouraged your interest in music. You've written about how he modified a small Norelco reel-to-reel recorder when you were in high school, and I'm wondering what kinds of things you were recording back then. I'd read about things and hear things uh, on records that I got out of the library, whether it was like a John Cage thing or Beatles or different kind of jazz things that you could get, you could get them out of the public, these records out of the public library. So I became, was trying to educate myself, become aware of all these things, and some of these things I thought I would try myself. So I remember one thing was um, as many layers of sort of guitar feedback and microphone feedback as I could possibly get. Because my dad helped me do a thing where I could record what was then called sound on sound. Sound on sound was a little tricky. It's not the same as multi-track recording, like what exists now on, uh, in recording studios or on your laptop. It's the kind of thing where the, the sound, you would listen to the sound coming off the tape recorder, you could add something to it, and then it would get re-recorded on another recording head on the same tape recorder. So basically you had destroyed what was there previously, but in the process you'd added something to it. But if you're overdub, if you, the thing you added was not perfect, well, you, you just had to start from scratch. <laughs> uh, but I remember doing one which was lots of feedback and howling sounds and all this kind of very you know noisy, unpleasant stuff, layered upon layer of that. Uh, and then I, I recorded some songs as well. I tried to do a version of the uh, Turtles song, Happy Together, using sort of coffee cans as uh, drums. I know that listening to Mr. Tambourine Man performed by the Birds and Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze had a big impact on you. And you've written about how after hearing Purple Haze, you felt like the world was suddenly a bigger, more mysterious, more exciting place. And I'm wondering in what way did, did that happen? Like, how did that happen? Did it just sort of overcome you, change your DNA? Both those songs, yes, I was hearing on that little transistor radio that I had under my pillow, and they were being played on the radio. And part of it was the sound, the sound of those songs. 
this, there were sounds that they were making with their guitars and everything else and the arrangements that I'd never heard before. And somehow it was just like, wow, that is, that is amazing. Uh, I didn't know you could do that. What is that about? And then, of course, the words were unlike any kind of the uh, I love you da -da 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 songs that we were used to hearing on pop radio. And that, too, was saying there's another world out there where people are talking about other kinds of things more than what uh, I know about in my suburban town out here. Where do I go? Do I is this is this something that happens in downtown Baltimore or do I have to go to New York or I had no idea. Did you teach yourself how to play guitar and ukulele and how to read music? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't read music well at all, but I did teach myself to play. And I did that with the aid of uh, these songbooks. You know, like I had, I think, a Bob Dylan songbook and some others. And the chords tended to be fairly simple on those songs. And so if you learn three or four chords, you could play a lot of those songs. So for me, rather than learning scales and kind of theory, this gave me the kind of reward of being able to play a song that I'd heard immediately. Uh, I think if somebody wants to learn something, they should constantly be getting rewarded along the way. You began performing in local college coffee houses, and I read that you played rock songs in a folk music style and aggressive songs on the ukulele. And so I'm wondering what kinds of aggressive songs were you playing on the ukulele? On the ukulele, I remember doing um, Summertime Blues by a kind of uh, Eddie Cochran, the rockabilly singer, and possibly a kind of psychedelic group called Blue Cheer. I think the, the Who did that song as well. A number of people did it. So it was around. But uh, it was interesting that the audiences were all sort of compartmentalized. The folk audience had never heard these songs. And there were songs by various you know, pop artists, whether it's rock or R&B or whatever, that were quite literate. And, quite, and the, the writing was really, really good. But the, the folk crowd kind of stayed in their bubble. And they were kind of unaware of that. So... I took advantage of that and played those stuff. And they were like, oh, that's a really good song. Who wrote that song? And it was, you know, some pop group that most people would have known about. Yeah, so it made me realize that, yes, we, we get into our little aesthetic bubbles that way. And uh, we might miss something as a result. Given the range of your artistic pursuits at the time, I was really surprised to read that your teachers and your guidance counselors tried to talk you out of going to art school. Why did they do that? <laughs> Maybe they didn't see any future in it, um, you know, financial. I was interested um, in engineering and science at the same time that I was interested in music, and art and things like that. I saw them both all as being equally valid kind of creative endeavors, but they were very, again, each in their own bubble, in their own silos. And I'd go, I went to one school and said, well, can I take a, uh, classes in the art department over there and also in the uh, science and engineering department. I said, oh, no, no, you can't mix that. And I just thought, this is a problem. I'm interested in both. But well, so I just sort of did it myself anyway. So you were admitted to both Carnegie Mellon University and the Rhode Island School of Design. And I read that you picked RISD because the graffiti in the halls was better. This is, there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> That's probably not the only reason. You sense this kind of 
idea of kind of creativity was just bubbling over and people were just like expressing themselves on every surface. And uh, in the science and engineering school, it seemed very contained. I knew that there was creativity there. Then very, very creative people, but it seemed like it was being forced and being tamped down in some ways. Well, at least it's a decision based on some sort of artistic criteria. My my criteria was choosing the school that I went to because my best friend Tammy went. So <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope it worked out for you. But, no yeah. regrets. No regrets. Good, but good, but good. it wasn't exactly the most uh, learned of um, uh-huh. criteria. Uh, you spent a year at RISD, then transferred to Maryland Institute's College of the Art. And in Maryland, you formed a duo called Bizzotti with Marquijo, who played the accordion. And I read that you sometimes performed with a lighted candle on your hand-me-down violin bow while singing the standard Pennies from Heaven. And would you say that these were early attempts at performance art, or was it just a sort of experimenting to find your voice? Tell, tell me what some of the motivation was in doing something like that. I suppose it had some aspects of performance art in it. I mean, it was some of what, what we did was kind of bizarre, but... I think we both felt that it always had to be entertaining as well. We weren't going to do something that was going to bore the audience to tears or be confrontational and kind of aggressive towards the audience. We might do something strange, but we wanted to keep it entertaining at all times, no matter how strange it was. I remember one time, I think Mark played maybe a a fairly contemporary song. I I think it might have been 96 Tears or something, or maybe it was one of those other standards. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I struck poses, you know, like I'd stand on one leg and put my arms out and just hold that. And then I do another one as if these were not difficult poses. And, but I, the, my demeanor said, check me out. Isn't this amazing what I'm doing? It, of course, it wasn't amazing at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was things also, like that. I think how long you were staying in position, you know, Marina Abramovich would say that that was, you know, something that takes stamina. <laughs> yes, it did. Yeah, it did take a little bit of stamina. Was this around the time you shaved off your beard in the middle of a performance while Mark's girlfriend held up cue cards written in Russian? It could be around the same time, yeah. <laughs> I just love how that's it. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. <laughs> there, I heard there was a lot of blood when you did that, by the way. Yes, it's hard to shave off a beard without a mirror, but uh, yeah. You spent a year at MICA and then dropped out and returned to Rhode Island to visit friends and ended up forming a rock band you called The Artistics. And I read that you began by doing cover songs at loft parties in Providence. And you said this about your early performances. I was flailing about to see who I was, switching from an Amish look to a crazy androgynous rock and roller. And I wasn't afraid at least, at least to do so in public. So David, given how profoundly shy you were, what gave you this sense of freedom to experiment so freely on stage? Uh, well, I think part of that freedom to do be somewhat outrageous or whatever on stage is because, I, again, I felt like I didn't have a lot of social capital to lose. I didn't have mm. that a lot to lose. And uh, what I had to gain was that being kind of shy around people in kind of normal life, I could express myself on stage. That was a that was a platform where you could express yourself, whether it was in a song or how you were moving or how you dressed or whatever. So it was a way of, of course, announcing, here I am, I have something to say, look at me, look at me, look at me, <laughs> kind of thing. 
Without having to admit it. <laughs> yeah, without having to say that at the time, that's in, in a certain sense, that's kind of what you're doing. At that age, we're not quite sure how we want to be. It was a period also where I felt free to cycle through all these different versions of myself and, and see what, what, felt, what I felt comfortable with. In your book, How Music Works, you state that at that time, and this is how you refer to yourself, this is not how I'm referring to you, you wrote, Desperate Dave did not have ambitions to be a professional musician. That seemed wholly unrealistic. And I'm wondering, when did that change for you? I don't think it changed until uh, a small audience, there might have been 20 people, maybe even less, at CBGB's heard us play. I think we opened for the Ramones, maybe. Oh, it, um, uh, with with Talking Heads. Yeah, until they heard us play with Talking Heads, we'd rehearsed a number of songs, enough to play maybe for half an hour. And uh, when those people paid attention and actually applauded, and some of them actually said, hey, you're doing something kind of interesting here, that, well, at least it encouraged me to not give it up. And I thought, oh, if these 20 people like it, Maybe they'll tell their friends, or maybe it'll be 40 people next time. Who knows? This could, uh, could be on to something here. What was the first song you ever wrote? When I was a teenager, I tried to write one, some kind of amalgamation of things I was hearing. I think I tried to write one called Bald-Headed Woman. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was terrible, really terrible. Never, never performed it. It was terrible. But years later, in a similar kind of attempt, I thought I would do a kind of folk song about a serial killer <laughs> and sort of not seriously, but sort of just, oh, let me see if I can write a song. Let's say if Alice Cooper was as folky, what would that sound like? So it was kind of just an experiment to see if, if I could write a song. And it turned out I could. I got help from Chris and Tina, the drummer and bass player. And uh, it turned out to be a really popular song. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a bit of an albatross, actually, because when I wrote it, it was just a sort of, I felt like it was just an experiment to see if I could write a song. And that's a pretty, pretty amazing song, like your first song out, out of the gate. Like, that's a, that's a home run. That's like a lo bases loaded <laughs> home run. Well, thank you. But, now, but then it became something like, okay, I didn't feel like it was that uh, original, but I felt like now you have to write songs that are really, that are really you. That was a kind of experiment just to see if you could do it. Now you know you can do it, but now you have to do it kind of more from the heart, more from something that is, um, that is unique and that is different from what other people are doing. When I saw American Utopia, which we'll talk about in a bit, I was struck by how fresh a lot of the songs sounded especially because I'm I'm really familiar with your, your catalog and I've been a fan since 77. So I came away from the show feeling like I felt like when I left a Joni Mitchell concert, you know, with her doing her songs in really unique ways that surprise you and, and mm. still really give you the sense of, of, of understanding them and knowing them, but also feeling like maybe you're kind of hearing them this way for the very first time. And I was wondering, do you ever get tired of playing a song? You know, one of the things that Joni said in one of her concerts was like, nobody ever asked Van Gogh to paint a starry night again. <laughs> you know? Oh, yes. And, and so I was wondering how, how you feel about playing Psycho Killer all these decades later. It seems that if the arrangements are right, there's enough songs so I can pick ones that seem to have a contemporary resonance. If I can do that, 
then they feel kind of fresh. And they still they still feel relevant. Uh, they don't feel like oh this is just dredging up the past. But yeah, the, but the your bigger question is when you're doing uh, musicians on tour or actors or musicians or whatever on Broadway or on theater, they're basically doing the same thing every night, night after night after night. And does does it get boring, or do they completely zone out and uh, start thinking about oh yeah. Don't forget to pick up some milk and, uh, <laughs> Have to and move some the car spinach the or something on the, the way home tonight. Yeah. You're, you're, while you're singing, you're thinking you're making a grocery list. <laughs> Actually, that doesn't happen. I mean, it has happened once or twice, but mostly it doesn't happen. It's kind of amazing. Maybe it's because you're with an audience. So there's a connection between you as a performer and the, uh, the audience that's kind of fresh every night. That connection that happens is it's real, it's immediate, it's in the moment. And in a way, that's what the performance is about, sometimes more than the actual material. You've said that though much of your own music may initially have been composed in isolation, it only approached its final shape being performed live. And I was wondering if that was also the component that, you know, when you're performing live, anything can and does happen. And maybe that sort of energy that's being created at the same time you're performing something does make it a bit different. It's true. When, and in the beginning of my, when I started making music and performing, it was very much true that uh, the songs would take shape through live performance. You'd have a kind of sketch out an arrangement, but then the arrangement would really start to flesh itself out and you find out where the strong and weak parts were when you start performing it night after night in front of people. Uh, and then you record it. So the, the, the polishing and shaping has all happened in front of an audience. And then you record the recording is basically an attempt to capture that. And now it's kind of flipped all around. Yeah. You kind of create something in the studio or on a computer or whatever like that. And then then you have to figure out what do I do in front of an audience? Do I just reproduce this thing or do I have to translate it into something else that works in front of an audience? Uh, I don't have an answer. It's a dilemma in a way. Well, part of, I think, what's wonderful for people that really enjoy listening to music and, and really following an artist's career is watching how they evolve and watching how they grow and change. But it seems now that so many performers have to emerge fully formed. And then there isn't as much room for them to really change and grow because of the fear that their fans might abandon them. And that's really sad. I agree. One of the things that the internet and people being able to kind of video performances and record them with their phones and then upload those and everything, it means that, yes, from the beginning, you're, you're kind of every, everything is splashed out there to the public. It's rare that you have this tiny little community that you can kind of evolve in. And then when you really get your stuff into some kind of shape, then you can put it to a wider public. That can happen, but it's, it's just it's harder for people to do now. Your sound as a band, the Talking Heads sound, began to expand and grow and evolve when you started working with Brian Eno. And in all the research that I did, I could not find out how you first met, 
How did you and Brian Eno first meet? We met when uh, another musician, a guy named John Cale, who used to be in the Velvet Underground. Yes. A group that we and Talking Heads were big fans of the Velvet Underground. And we met John. John would come to CBGB's and see us. And we were in London, and I guess he was there. And he brought Brian Eno around. And we knew Eno from Roxy Music. And I don't think we, we thought, oh, will you produce our next record? We just, we just thought, oh, this person is wonderful and shares a lot of our interests and they're fun to hang out with and all that sort of thing. So that was how that got started. You and Eno independently collaborated on the album My Life in the Bush of Ghosts in addition to all of the albums that you worked on with him in Talking Heads. And you've worked with him many times since. What is the biggest thing you learned from him? I've, I've learned a lot from working with Brian, which makes... It's what always tempts me to kind of try working with him again if we, if we come up with some reason to do that. He often likes to emphasize the texture of a piece of music over the kind of, say, the, the chords or the melody or the harmonic things uh, aspect of it. I'm, that's an exaggeration, but there's some truth to that. He likes to, he likes to push... When he's producing groups, I think he sometimes likes to push them to experiment and do something they haven't done before. I found that to be exciting. And when it worked, you sometimes end up with something that you wouldn't have never arrived at in another way. If you had sat down and said, this is what I want to do, and this is how I'm going to write it, this is what it's going to be, you would have never come up with that. I had previously written words and melodies over top of kind of jams that the band and I had done. But Brian uh, was ready to take that further and encouraged us to just do that in the studio, sort of improvise and come up with the music in the studio. And then I would say, okay, I'll give me a couple of weeks and I'll go away and write words to, and to this stuff. And I realized that, that that was a possibility, that you could actually write songs that way. That was kind of a surprise. The magic of songwriting, and I've talked a, a lot about this with musicians that I've interviewed on the show, as somebody that has spent a whole life drawing and writing and designing and making things, writing music has seemed to be the one area of the arts that feels the most mysterious, sort of conjuring something up from nothing with both music and mood and words. It just is, it's such a gift. It's an incredible gift. I agree. I agree. I've read that music uh, engages a lot of different parts of the brain and many, many senses all at once, more than some of the other arts and humanities. I think that music uh, is, can be, has a certain amount of ambiguity to it. If something's, say, written down in a novel or something like that, it has to be described. But in music, it's kind of, you're kind of going straight to the emotion of it. You can convey what it feels like, and you don't have to describe that. And there can also be a tension between the way you're conveying it and what the words actually are. You know, they, yes, there can exactly. be that tension. That's, that's something that there might be other forms that could do that, but music can do that really well where... There could be a tension between what you're saying and what the music sounds like. I mean, okay, the music could be very aggressive sounding, but the lyrics could be somebody kind of very lonely and heartbroken. Yeah. And it seems like they're kind of clashing against one another, but that's 
That's kind of how that works. That's the music I actually like the most. You can also have, (laughs) (laughs) there's also the tension between, well, is the singer songwriter singing about themselves or are they singing about me without them even really knowing about it? So exactly. Yeah. That that part I love. David, collaboration has been a constant thread through your career, so much so that Pitchfork once wrote that you would collaborate with anyone for a bag of Doritos. And I took I took a bit of offense to that, thinking that your culinary taste was far better. Though you've written that though this wasn't intended as a compliment, it's really not that far from the truth. Some of the people you've worked with include Robert Wilson, Twyla Tharp, Philip Glass, Fatboy Slim, Florence Welch, De La Soul, St. Vincent, Jonathan Demme, Hillman Curtis, a, a wonderful friend, the late great Hillman Curtis, Howard Finster, Robert Rauschenberg, Dave Eggers, a slew of graphic designers, including Tibor Kalman and Emily Oberman, who's my best friend, um, at Emin Company, Peter Saville, Stephen Doyle, Stefan Sagmeister. And I read that over the years, you've learned that you can work with people in a way that's not so dictatorial. And I'd love to know how you learned that as someone that also can sometimes struggle with that. Don't we all? I think when I was younger, I had maybe an idea of, ah, this, I want to do this. I want to do this. I'm imagining like this. This is the vision I have. This is where, how I want, how I imagine this either sounding or how this, I imagine this looking or whatever it might be. And I'd be very much kind of my way or the highway about that. And kind of like, no, it has to be like this. And it has to be exactly like this. I'm not the calmest person in the world sometimes. So I would maybe get a bit aggressive and shouty about insisting that it be done as correctly as I saw it. I learned over the years that, that you maybe get the same results, but you don't have to do all that. That often people enjoy working together they want to be on the same team and kind of achieve the same ends in many cases. And so you don't have to yell at them. They actually want to join together with you and do the same thing. And it, the guiding and the shaping can be done in a much more subtle and uh, joyful way. Kind of thing dawned on me kind of slowly. I'm not sure exactly how it happened. Maybe just being more comfortable in your own skin? Maybe being comfortable in my own skin. Maybe feeling that it's after having kind of been around and achieved things a little bit, I might've felt like, you know, if this doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. You can still go on. Yeah. I think that happens with age. At least it has for me. You know, you kind of realize how many times you've previously thought this was the worst or the the last or the messiest. And then you suddenly realize, nah, it just changes and you go on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You've stated that audiences love it when a performer walks the tightrope in front of them. Like sports fans, they feel like their support is what keeps the team winning. Given the way you skate across so many genres, do you seek out the tightrope? Do you feel comfortable being in a place where you're not exactly sure where you might fall? Yeah, I do. I remember 2018, I guess, we toured for a good part of the year. And then there was an, an interest in uh, bringing the show to Broadway. I knew that we'd have to change the show to do it there. We'd have to make some adjustments. It'd be a slightly different audience. It'd be, it's a slightly different situation, expect, set of expectations, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, yes, this is going to be a challenge. People may not like this kind of thing. Broad, a Broadway audience may not like this. They may you know, go, where's the story? Um, <laughs> But I thought, yes, I thought that would be 
more of a challenge and more interesting for me than just touring for another year doing exactly the same thing. I thought, oh, look, I can take what I'm doing and kind of build on it, and it may not work. Yeah, I talked to the producers of the Broadway show the other day, and they said, we really didn't know that this was going to work. Of course, the band and I all felt like, yeah, yeah, this is going to be fine. <laughs> well, you, you'd had a successful run touring it. I mean, that, yes, that so part we were, was... Yes, we felt like, yes, oh, the tour worked. But at the same time, I knew that a Broadway audience and a Broadway theater comes with a different set of expectations. So I thought, mm, this, this is not guaranteed. Yeah. Did you put the album together first and then take it out on tour? Or were you creating the album while on tour? There was an album, um, I don't know, maybe it's four or five of the songs that are in the show came from a recent album. That was done before the tour. Okay. As I was doing the record, I was starting to picture in my head a bunch of drummers on stage. And I, I had that image. And I thought, okay, let's build on that. You've said this about the songs of American Utopia on your website. The title is not ironic. The songs don't describe an imaginary and possibly impossible place, but rather they attempt to describe the world we live in now. And that world, when we look at it as we live in it, as it impacts on us, immediately commands us to ask ourselves, is there another way, a better way, a different way? And as I was reading that and going through your body of work, I was wondering if somehow this was on some level, a sequel to True Stories. Wow. <laughs> I hadn't thought that. When you, when you just kind of read that back to me, I thought, wow, that sure is what we've been asking ourselves uh, in the last year during the pandemic. And yes. Black Lives Matter and everything else that's been going on. We're kind of on pause now. Yeah. When we go back, is there a better way to do things? Can we rethink things? We don't have to go back to the way we were. As far as I know, this is the only live performance where all of the musicians are untethered. You play all wirelessly. You have no amps, no wire showing on stage. We've seen untethered guitars for years now and untethered microphones, but not so much percussion. And did I see someone blowing into their percussion? Yeah, yeah. Tim has this, <laughs> this weird thing where it's like this tube that he can blow air into and it changes the pitch of his drum. I had no, I didn't know this thing exists. New Music Express stated that American Utopia might be the most ambitious and impressive live show of all time. And I agree. I saw it with a mutual friend of ours, Maria Popova, and we were just struck by how utterly joyous it was. Pre-pandemic, you were performing six shows a week. How hard was it to bring that level of energy where you're actually in the audience at one point to every single performance? It was actually not that hard. Not that no? hard. I mean, <laughs> I, I, yes, I would go to bed. You know, I wouldn't go out. I, 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 I talked to other theater performers who would do you know, similar show, things with six or seven shows a week. And I'd say, okay, how, how do you do that? You go, don't go out and hang with your friends afterwards. No hard partying. Yeah, no, don't party. It'll totally wear you out. Take care of yourself. Don't party with your friends. If you want to see them, see them for lunch the next day or something like that. So, I, yeah, I took that advice. But it's also true that you're connecting, connecting with the audience in these, a show like this. And they react. They laugh or, or they dance. 
And that's incredibly kind of energizing for a performer to have people react like that. So, yeah, it, it sort of never gets tired. You have a super fan. His name is Spike Lee. He went to see the show numerous times and then asked you if you wanted to make a film of it. And I read that when you asked him if he wanted to shorten anything or open something up or change the order, he said, no, it works the way it is. I don't want to mess with it. And the movie truly does manage to keep the energy of the live performance while also offering shots and angles that a live audience would never be able to see. I love the aerial shots that he did. Are you happy with the way the film turned out? I'm very happy with the way the film turned out. I'm a big fan of Spike and, and also a fan of his uh, director of photography, Ellen, Ellen Kuris. Between the two of them, they really kind of mapped out, oh, this is how we're going to shoot this song. This is how we're going to capture this moment. So it, it wasn't just a haphazard, let's throw a bunch of cameras out there and, and uh, keep our fingers crossed. It was, there was a plan. And I felt like I the band and I were in good hands. So we could just, we could focus on what, what our job was. Are you excited about the murmurings of it being a possible Oscar best film contender? I'll be surprised. I'll be very surprised. I think <laughs> it's really it, wonderful. Because it falls under the documentary category. Yeah, but the New York Times was actually talking about it as best picture. Oh, geez. <laughs> well, that's what I read. Wow. So you stated that American Utopia was not originally conceived as an entity that would work across so many platforms. Um, it went from an album to a concert to a Broadway show to a film, and now it's also a book that you have published with the great artist and illustrator Myra Kelman. And the book extends the work that you and Myra have done for quite some time. She did the work for The Stage Curtain. You also worked with her 34 years ago on her first children's book, Stay Up Late. So how did the book, American Utopia, come to life? I approached Myra about doing the stage curtain, which was partly inspired by Alex Timbers, the theater director, who said, your run is long enough that you could probably ask the producers for your own curtain, and that it, it can be something where the curtain can help the audience kind of introduce, you can introduce the themes of what you're going to be dealing with for the rest of the evening. It's, it's kind of like, almost like the show begins when they start looking at the curtain. Yeah. Alex showed me a, a picture from like some, I don't know, 1950s children's book or something that was a map of the United States and kind of the folklore of the United States. So up in the Northwest was a picture of Paul Bunyan. And then maybe uh, New York State was Ichabod Crane or Rip Van Winkle. And so it was all these characters all over the, the, the map of the states. And I thought, oh, that's, that's, that might be a way to do it. Instead of having just some all over, some big design, we show the kind of humanity that we're talking about. And I immediately then just thought of Myra. And yeah. uh, yes, we'd worked together before. So she did that beautifully. And then we looked at it and said, can we turn this into something else? <laughs> People might want to like go home with a poster of this curtain or something. And I think between Myra and her son, Alex, they came up with the idea. I think they came up with the idea. Oh, let's do it as a picture book. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's And it has such a nice... Yeah, yeah it is. It, it's sort of a standalone piece, but it also is a side-by-side -side piece. It has that sort of same humanity and pathos and optimism of the show and also something that you could just read and enjoy. They really captured it. Very much the same mood as the show. Yeah. David, the last thing I want to ask you about is achievement. 
You were recently asked what your greatest achievement in life was, and though you acknowledge that your answer was a cliche, I was really touched by it. And you said that your greatest achievement in life was your daughter, and now you also have a grandson. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, In the same interview, you stated that coming from you, she could have been such a mess, but she's not, and she's happy, very happy. David, why on earth would you think that coming from you, she could have been a mess? Um, I was not a horrible parent, but I was on tour sometimes. I recall that there were times when I just thought, ah, this parent thing, I really don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Or oh, there was other times when I thought, oh, this parent thing, I, it, it doesn't fit with the picture I have of myself, of being this kind of, you know, independent artist, bohemian type. And yet, I actually enjoyed, enjoyed it very much. Um, but yes, so all those kinds of things. Luckily, uh, the little ones are more resilient than maybe we give them credit for. Yeah. Yes. I also see that your daughter is a designer, so I guess the creativity is running in the family. Maybe, yeah. David Byrne, thank you so much for creating so many extraordinary things in the world, and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters and having this conversation with me. Thank you, thank you. You can read more about David Byrne's body of work at davidbyrne.com. You can also listen to David Byrne Radio on Apple Music. American Utopia, the film, is on HBO, and American Utopia, the book, is in bookstores. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. 